Welcome to the Green Front on this eve of Thanksgiving, and that means Hanukkah and Christmas cannot be far behind. In our second half of today's program, we will meet the creator of a great green board game, a perfect gift to consider for the holidays. But up first, one of my sheroes, a woman who has been on the green front lines for more than 25 years, long before there was a green movement, or at least this latest wave of it, Hunter Lovins, who needs no introduction in the environmental community. But for those of you who have not heard her speak, you are in for a treat. She is brilliant and bold, and she's been promoting sustainable development for a very long time. She's also the founder and president of Natural Capitalism and co-author of a book, by that same name, and she, along with her then-husband, Amory Lovins, founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, which Hunter led for some 20 years. She is uh, probably the most um, often uh, the keynote speaker at environmental conferences, and she's bold and she's brilliant, and I am very honored to have her on today's program. Welcome to the Green Front, Hunter. Thank you, Betsy. It's very good to be back with you. So we bumped into each other at GreenFest right after the elections uh, some three weeks ago, and I had to ask you what you think of the results, which were certainly mixed. Here in California, of course, there was a victory, the defeat of Proposition 23, which would have uh, cut short our landmark uh, climate change uh, measures here in the Golden Green State, and also the uh, re-election of Barbara Boxer. That's certainly a good sign. And then Jerry Brown, who's been green all along, uh, defeating uh, Carly Fiorina. And, uh, no, Meg Whitman got those two races mixed up. Uh, Barbara Boxer, of course, defeating Carly Fiorina. And so we're going to talk today about some of the things that uh, were very disturbing, some of the results that feel like, um, you know, we've really um, lost some ground. And, of course, I'm talking about the um, uh, introduction of some Tea Partiers, some uh, conservative Republicans who are not going to be leaders on the green front line, certainly not as that relates to climate change. So first, um, what's your impression of what happened on November 3rd nationally? Nationally, the results were very troubling, but not at all surprising. Midterm elections, when an economy is down, are typically against the party in power. And the Democrats had the White House and both houses of Congress, so it is not at all surprising that they took some losses. I'm actually a little surprised the losses weren't greater, and the California victories that you cited are are very important, and well, I'm very grateful for those. But you know, I found myself in voting, holding my nose and being angry. I'm not at all surprised that the electorate was angry. We've had two years of an administration that campaigned on a lot of green promises, and while they have appointed some good people to various administrative posts and implemented a, a number of administrative actions, the executive order on implementing sustainability is now starting to have profound implications amongst the agencies and in under a week I'll fly to DC to work with the General Services Administration on how to green the federal government. Like there's I said, you're on the green the front line, certainly. <laughs> yeah, there's much the administration hasn't done, but there there is also much that it's done that, that we haven't seen. However, I think the administration missed an enormous opportunity 
to point out to the American people that the way out of the recession is to unleash American innovation, entrepreneurialism, and rather than spending the money bailing out the banks, let's spend the money enabling the green entrepreneurs, which California has in richness, to create the next economy. And this was not done. Now, perhaps it would, they thought it would be their second round of stimulus funding, but going for shovel-ready projects, which simply continues the building of roads and bridges and infrastructure that's not very green, hires companies that um, are already working, as opposed to enabling the entrepreneurs to create new companies, putting people to work, doing the, the sorts of things that our country, our economy, our environment needs done. This was not done. And the administration, I think, missed an enormous opportunity. And as a result, the Democrats didn't have much of a story to tell. Well, we've just spent trillions of your dollars, and uh, we're still in a recession. We're not creating jobs. Main Street's not much better than it, than it was a few years ago. Unemployment continues to, uh, to go up, and uh, the stock market's looking shaky again. Vote for us. And yet, uh, this that's is... a bit of a hard sell. Right. I mean, we, and um, those of us who have been very concerned about climate change and all kinds of ecosystem uh, decline, you know, really just had to hold our nose through eight years of the Bush administration and then, you know, the great green hope, um, President Obama, as you say, came in and we thought finally uh, we're going to get these issues addressed. And, of course, uh, health care reform took up a lot of bandwidth and, like you said, hopefully the second two years is going to see a little bit more action on the green front. But Alongside this, parallel to all this uh, stalling and this impasse, legislative impasse, of course, we're seeing nature not waiting around for us to get our act together. Nature's not waiting around. This will almost certainly be the hottest year ever in recorded history. It has been so far. Cancun will fail, uh, despite those of us who will be going and trying to get something out of it. Copenhagen failed because the U.S. had taken no action nationally, and in the wake of the failure of Copenhagen and then the failure of the U.S. Senate to take any action, organizations like Chicago Climate Exchange collapsed. That, For me personally, that was the low point. If brilliant minds like Richard Sandor can't pull it off, what chance have we? Why am I flying around on airplanes, burning carbon to save the climate? I have a lovely ranch in Colorado. Why don't I just go home, ride my horse? (laughs) You'll have your hat on, of course. You always do, your cowboy hat. (laughs) Cowboy hat hat. firmly in place. And (laughs) what am I doing hanging around when there's no hope now, I think, at the national level, probably two years at least. And then that depends on who the next administration is. If we get Sarah Palin, it's uh, it's going to be a little challenge. And of now course, I, she, she has her own nature uh, show now on on, T, on uh, the Discovery Channel. I hear making two million dollars an episode. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, have we completely lost our mind in this country? You could argue that. You could argue that. But I would argue actually that what we have done on in the green movement, in in the progressive movement, is failed ourselves. Hemingway once said, everything's your fault if you're any damn good. 
you're an environmentalist, you know, Rush Limbaugh says we caused that uh, Gulf uh, disaster. Mm. <laughs> I think we need to take a good, hard look at ourselves and recognize that the, the, the mainstream environmental movement has been aimed at legislation, at litigation, at, at lobbying in Washington. We have done a lousy job of bringing our story of unleashing the new energy economy, of creating jobs, of driving innovation to Main Street. And I speak as someone who works mostly at the state and local level. We've put together a program we call Solutions at the Speed of Business. It's a web-based learning tool for small businesses to enable them to implement climate protection, sustainability measures in ways that are profitable. We have a for-profit version, Natural Capitalism Incorporated, that runs learning circles for CEOs so that they can come together, work through this web-based tool, and implement these measures to cut their costs, to drive their profitability, and it's working. We've worked now with oh, going on three or four of these learning circles. In every instance, companies are getting at least 100% return on investment. Some companies are saving hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, cutting out waste, changing out their lighting, changing their packaging. And at the same time, they're inspiring their workers. They're enhancing labor productivity. They're positioning themselves to be able to access investment capital that wants to be invested in more responsible businesses. They're positioning themselves to sell to Walmart, which has the sustainability scorecard. They're enhancing shareholder value in every way. And this message hasn't gotten out that environmental protection is better business. It's higher profitability. It's the way to create jobs, and it's the way to drive innovation. And exactly. I think this is now going to be the, the, the route if those of us who, who care about protecting the planet are going to stay in this fight. This, this is the way that we, uh, that we ought to be headed. And, and I have a few conservative friends, and when they say we need to fix the economy before we can deal with the environment, I say there's no jobs on a dead planet, you know. Um, but that, the way you phrased spoke. it is precisely the way the environmental movement's been phrasing it all along, that we have to take care of the planet, and doing that is costly, and, but we have to do that if we want to have an economy. I think we need to turn it round. The route to prosperity is through creating the new green economy. And there's now increasing evidence that at the point at which commodities in the spring of 2008, commodities were hitting all-time highs mm -hmm. in prices, the Wall Street Journal, of all, came out with a, a story questioning whether maybe that old book, Limits to Growth, might not have been correct. And it was less than six months later that the economy crashed. When oil hit five bucks a gallon, we very shortly had a, uh, a, a serious shock in the economy. Now, people say, sure, it was the mortgage situation. But when people are choosing between putting gasoline in their car so they can drive to work and paying their mortgage, I guess which goes. 
There are several studies out showing this connection. Uh, The chief scientist of the U.K. has pointed out that the underlying unsustainability of the way we've done business was a huge part of the driver for the economic collapse. Jonathan Porat, founder of uh, Forum for the Future, has said the same thing. And I'm now arguing that unless we implement more sustainable practices, implementing them because they are profitable right now and because they begin to shift this underlying unsustainability, we will simply lurch from crisis to crisis to crisis. Never mind climate. Yes, it's a serious problem. Yes, it's real. And yes, it is already having very profound effects around the world. Witness 20 million Pakistanis underwater. Mm, Not to mention the fires in Russia and heat waves in this country. Sure, but let's assume climate change is a hoax. Now, frankly, don't go to Vegas on the odds of that being true. But let's say that the climate skeptics are correct. Everything that you would do if you were scared to death about climate change is precisely what you would do if you're a profit-maximizing capitalist. And all you want to do is drive the profitability of your company. This is the point of my new book, Climate Capitalism, which will come out from Tom Friedman's publisher for our Strauss-Gerot this March, that we know how to solve these problems at a profit. So let's stop arguing about the science. Let's stop arguing about dead planets. And let's start talking about profitability. Let's stop, start talking about job creation in our own communities and look very seriously at where do you get jobs. It turns out you get ten times the number of jobs from investing in renewable energy that you get from building a central station fossil plant. Do you want jobs in your community? Then let's invest in in renewable energy. Per megawatt saved in a community, you will generate over $2 million in increased economic activity and over half a million dollars in increased wages. Oh, and by the way, you've helped solve the climate problem. I think we need to flip this whole conversation and recognize that what that we have the route out of the recession and start demanding that we implement it. And at environmental conferences, as long as I've been going to them, which is at least 10 years, we hear speakers like yourself, like Paul Hawkins, saying this very thing, and yet there is um, the biggest decline ever in climate change awareness and those who believe it's a, it's a you know, real pressing problem. How much do you fault the um, you know, extreme right-wing media that is dominating you know, the discourse these days, talking about, of course, Fox News, faux news, uh, Fox Television, and Sean Inanity and company, as well as the fact that, and many people don't know this, Hunter, 90% of all talk shows currently on American Airways are conservative shows. And I have tried for over a decade to get a green program on, you know, a national platform. And with all the um, business, you know, shows, news shows, commentary, sports, celebrity shows, uh, Real Housewives, um, you know, franchise, it is quite you know, striking, and, and maybe that's part of the problem, that we don't have one live, I'm talking about a live green talk show on from coast to coast, you know, up against Rush Limbaugh, three hours a day, where we talk about these issues, the pressing, many pressing challenges, and the solutions. So how much do you blame what's going on in media for Americans, um, you know, decline in belief that this is a very urgent problem, just climate change alone, let alone well, ocean I... acidification and, you know, species decline, ecosystem decline? 
sure, but as a uh, as a friend of mine's mother once said, environmentalists make lousy dinner conversationalists. <laughs> when we talk, it's about drowning polar bears and all of the gloomy science. Now, frankly, the gloomy science is correct, but people are tired of hearing about it. New study out from um, University of California, Berkeley, shows that the potentially devastating consequences of global warming threaten people's fundamental tendency to see the world as safe, stable, and fair. As a result, people may respond by discounting evidence for global warming, said Rob Willer, UC Berkeley social psychologist and co-author of the study. The scarier the message, the more people who are committed to viewing the world as fundamentally stable and fair are motivated to deny it. And, and if that is a universal human trait, well, sorry, if that's a universal human trait, because I read the results of that study as well, you know, it is kind of striking that, you know, if, it, if it's sort of natural for humans to react that way, why, you know, is the country so divided and so polarized in its view of, you know, this, uh, the state of the planet? Because if you believe the Rush Limbaugh's and the Sarah Palin's, then if, you, if we just keep doing business as usual, that's the route to prosperity. Which would you prefer, to give up comfort and convenience and your lifestyle in order to save some polar bears, or believe people who tell you that the environmentalists are wrong, there's nothing wrong with the climate, and we can just party on? Hmm. And yet, and yet, um, you know, there's killer storms, epic, you know, proportion and intensity. You know, every almost every week, there's some, you know, killer tornado, hurricane, not to mention record heat waves. Of course, globally, the you know horrible floods in Pakistan that you know make it difficult to think it is just the polar bears and penguins who are being affected, you know, in far off places or some future problem. Is it that the media is still not connecting the dots between these extreme weather events and climate instability? The people who pay the media don't want you to connect the dots. And the people who listen to the media don't want the dots connected. We may be living in as, as foolish a society has, has existed on the planet, perhaps since the, uh, the Romans went down, but that is the world we're in. And we can either push harder on this rope of ours that isn't going anywhere, or we can step back and say, okay, what's a better route? And I would argue that recognizing that everything that it takes to protect the climate is the route to prosperity, and just stuffing into our hip pocket the fact that we know, we know that people are starving now in places like Africa, that the Mekong Delta in Southeast Asia is going to be flooding, that Islands in Bangladesh have already gone underwater. There are now tens of thousands of climate refugees, they, and, and then everything that you've mentioned. You would stuff that in your hip pocket and talk about prosperity on Main Street. And you also talk about you know the developed world in uh, you know the, uh, on the planet uh, not getting it, but really some European nations have long since you know in some. Asian nations, uh, Japan early on, maybe China is going to leapfrog over us in terms of its investment in clean technology and the transition to renewable energy sources. But, you know, Germany uh, is now, you know, has been making uh, more solar panels than we have. And yet we here in, um, you know, the land of opportunity 
and consumption are, you know, out of whack with the rest of the world, of course. And tell me if this figure has been updated, but it is astonishing every time I say it or hear it, that we're 4 to 5% of the world's population and we use 25% or so of the world's natural resources and create the same amount of waste. So, you know, here in America, it's not a good place to not get it, and yet we're not getting it more than ever as a country. We are not getting it, but increasingly what we are creating is an angry, belligerent group of voters whose reaction to a statement like that would be, so what? That's just fine. If it's us versus them, let's be sure we win. And it's all about freedom in their view. You know, there's no freedom on a dying planet either. So you have to wonder... um, why is their fear of change and upsetting the status quo greater than what would be a more appropriate fear of, you know, climate instability and all the havoc that is going to wreak worldwide? I would argue, again, it's because we have not been masterful enough at framing the arguments in ways that make it easy for them to see what's in it for them. Mm-hmm and that our opponents have been very good at framing the arguments in ways that make it very easy for people to see what's in it for them by not changing. That so long as we persist in this, we will continue to be on the losing side. Now, we all like doing things in ways that are comfortable to us. I worked once with an organization that was uh, boycotting some uh, a car company and an electronics company because uh, their parent company, actually it wasn't even their parent company, a company with the same name in Japan was unsustainably harvesting uh, rainforest timber. And I, I said to these guys, uh, look, you've won. What you've done by boycotting the American companies is gotten their CEOs to be willing to talk to you. Their CEOs are the only route you have to get to the Japanese company, which is your real target. Call off your boycott. And one of the um, the, the, the guy in this organization who was in charge of the boycott plaintively said, but all I know how to do is run a boycott. <laughs> and I said, because we all that Randy Hayes at Rainforest Action Network? I like no, to give no, credit where credit Randy. is due. Not Randy. It was not Randy. Who is uh, very masterful at all of this, and in fact it was Randy who ultimately stepped in and helped the organization recognize that it did have to change its ways. And because of Randy stepping in, the two U.S. uh, CEOs got, and in that case it was Randy, got him with uh, the CEO of uh, Mitsubishi in Japan, and as a result Mitsubishi quit trading in unsustainably harvested uh, rainforest. Randy was the, if you will, the statesman who recognized that we're going to have to come up with a new way of doing this. Randy is now working on feed-in tariffs for solar. You mentioned Germany's success with solar. They got that by a piece of policy called a feed-in tariff. They did it at the national level, which unfortunately we're not going to be able to get done in this country. But feed-in tariffs can be done at a state level. Ontario, Canada has done it. At a city level, Gainesville, Florida has done it. You could probably do a feed-in tariff at a county level. And an organization in California called the FIT Coalition, Feed-in Tariff Coalition, is working on precisely this in California. 
it is probably the strongest policy tool that we have now to drive progress towards this new energy economy. Uh, Hunter, I have to interrupt and just ask you for clarification because I'm not sure I know. What is the difference between fee and tariffs and fees and dividends, which uh, some people I know have been promoting as an option to cap and trade? The the fee and dividend is a concept put forth by Peter Barnes, who would like to see the U.S. put a cap, uh, put a price on carbon through a tax, and then rebate the money that's raised to all individuals saying that the purity of the air, the stability of the carbon belongs to all people. Those who would imperil it should pay a fee, pay a tax for it, and then all of us get the benefit. Uh, Maria Cantwell tried to introduce this Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Congress. It didn't get very far. Uh, If there's anything American people uh, like less than being lectured on... uh, by self-righteous environmentalists, it's paying taxes. <laughs> greedy, too. We're very greedy, don't you know? <laughs> we appear to be, yes. But, and, and you know, I'll count myself in. I hate paying taxes. But the feed-in tariff is a wholly different policy. The jurisdiction that puts it in place says to the local utility, you will pay anyone who produces energy renewably a fair rate for that, which is significantly higher. In Germany, it was 65 cents a kilowatt hour to start with. In this country, the rates that are being proposed are around 25 cents a kilowatt hour, 35 cents a kilowatt hour. So that if you put up solar panels, you get paid for the energy that you feed into the grid. If you buy energy, you pay considerably less, half that or less. All of a sudden, investors in solar facilities, wind facilities, small hydro, biofuel, uh, electricity generators have an enormous financial incentive to invest this way. Now, you mentioned, you know, environmentalists make, you know, really lousy dinner guests because we're full of gloom and doom. And yet, here's a paradox. Maybe you can um, speak to this because you've been to way more green gatherings, conferences and such than I have. And yet, what happens there? There's an energy. There's a passion. There's a sense of purpose and hope. It's exact opposite to what, um, certainly what programmers, you know, predict when I pitch a green show. They think it's going to be, you know, boring, uh, negative, depressing, and is not, you know, capable of being popular or profitable. And that's one of the reasons we don't have a green talk show. But that is a false assumption given, you know, just what you experience when you go to even a climate change conference. I was just at one last Monday about behavior change and climate. And there were, you know, more than a thousand people concerned about this issue, be they activists or have jobs that are addressing climate change. And so up until a week ago, it's still that same, maybe upbeat is too strong a word, but you know what I'm talking about. If you compare even the most upbeat of the green conferences with the the religious fervor that the the right-wing talk shows engender, we're still a very dour group of folk. The Our side, I think, needs to learn how to have fun, how to use the social media, how to welcome the young people that are creating clever animations and cool ways of combining music and 
learning and unleashing creativity into what we're doing. Uh, Bill McKibben just had a, uh, a major event around the world of art that can be seen from the sky. Using art, using, using music, using different modes of communicating, and having fun with it is something that is reasonably foreign to our side. And uh, We've got there's a lot also to learn in how people learn, how people communicate, and in how we can be a more attractive set of organizations for people to come be a part of if, if we want to uh, really take on the, uh, the tea parties and such. Well, then I have to mention uh, an idea that I am um, steeping on brewing, and that is uh, to launch an American Green Tea Party. And um, America's Green Tea Party is a URL that I've um, bought, says. And that would be for those of us who are steamed about the fact that climate change and environmental issues are not only off the front burner, but it seems for now the back burner as well. In other words, a very serious message, but a way to kind of poke fun at the tea partiers, most of whom think climate change is a hoax, but using, you know, some fun slogans to really uh, get people, make it friendly, you know, make it approachable. And so at the national level, try to, you know, get messages out there that show, you know, nature can't wait and to really show, expose the, um, you know, the Wizard of Oz, sort of pull back the curtain on what they're, you know, purporting to be for and against the scientific realities. And at the grassroots, sort of bottom-up level, we want to have, you know, invite people to come for green tea parties and tell, you know, folks in our communities to how to green their routine, if you will, routine spelled R-O-U-T-E-A-N-E. Is that the kind of fun you're talking about, or might that be No, we're, we're still being preachy and moralistic and uh, telling people how it is that they have to live their life. I'm talking about good old-fashioned fun, where we park our, our fears and our concerns and just come together as people to celebrate. And out of that kind of neighborliness and conversation as opposed to preaching begin to talk about how are we going to create better ways of living more satisfying ways of living this is um, this is actually being done with more traction i think by folk like the transition town movement mm-hmm. than by more traditional environmentalists now, they are driven by their own set of fears. They're quite convinced that peak oil is upon us, mm-hmm. and they may well be right. Peak oil is this concept uh, that came out of uh, the work of a man named M. King Hubbard, a shell oil geologist in the 1950s, mm-hmm. who pointed out that if you have exponentially growing demand for a finite resource, and that's certainly true of oil, particularly with China and India entering the world oil market a couple of years ago, and you continue to try to extract this finite resource at this exponentially growing rate, you fall off the production curve as steeply as you went up when you have extracted half the resource. This is a bit counterintuitive. In theory, you start to hit limits, you plateau, you stay on a plateau for a while, and then then it declines over time. And this has always been the conventional wisdom of oil. Oh, yeah, at some point when we have really exhausted all of the conventional sources, of which there is still a lot, and the unconventional sources, of which there is quite a lot, 
then maybe oil shortages will be a real concern. Hubbard's point was you fall off the curve when you've extracted half of it. He said the U.S. would peak in 1970. It did. And he said the world would peak right about now. For years, the International Energy Agency has been saying the world's awash in oil. Don't worry about it. Until last fall, when a couple of IEA whistleblowers talked to the, uh, I believe it's the Guardian in, in the U.K., saying actually the IEA has been cooking its books. There's a lot less oil than they want us to think. They've been doing this to pleasure the prior American administration and so as not to create world panic. The British government said, say what, we base our national accounts on IEA numbers. Where did those numbers come from? Fatih Bayral, the chief economist of the IEA, said, well, they're assumptions. But don't worry, we'll do a real study of all the 800 known oil fields. The the British government said, uh, we're going to commission an industry task force chaired by the managing director of Royal Dutch Shell. Bayral's report issued in December last, about a year ago, and it said within three to four years, expect uh, conventional oil extraction to begin to decline, and this is not good news for oil-using entities. The British government's report issued in March calling for an immediate transition to green transport. The transition town folks say, what will happen to your town, to your job, to your business, to your life when oil peaks? And... Recent numbers out of the IEA are suggesting that within a year or so, we're going to start to see rapidly climbing oil prices. Now, remember what happened the last time oil prices climbed? We had the 2008 financial collapse. So the transition town folk are saying, let's come together as neighbors and start thinking about how it is that we're going to meet our needs for energy and food and the things that we need to have and begin to prepare. This is so that's all about adaptation, and uh, it also brings community together. So I guess um, just briefly, momentarily, getting back to the idea of a green tea party, that would also, in my, in my vision, create community and wouldn't be preachy, I would hope, but more teachy, and by that not us the Greens teaching those, you know, the ignorant. Um, but really, we're all learning together because this is a, a new challenge and the biggest, the, you know, planet has ever faced. And so, anyway, that I think that's what I like about it, too, is it does build community. And many people I know here in Marin County, and you know the Bay Area, I mean, we are supposed to be a little more educated, but we also have a very heavy footprint because of the higher, you know, income level. Uh, many friends, uh, you know, say, I'd like to do more because most of them are parents, you know, moms for mo- the most part, but I don't know what to do. Yeah, I know we got problems, and I hear so much information. I don't know what to believe. So that's kind of the thinking behind this. You know, if you had to do ten things, what would they be? You know, what do you drive? What do you eat? How do we build? Anyway, not to um, labor on that, but I, I, I like some of the things Transition Town is doing, all of the things they're doing, uh, but that's reaching a different crowd than I think um, the moms of Marin and then hopefully going out to all levels of community. At least that's my green dream. <laughs> And I think others have been saying the same. We need a green green tea party. Sorry? I certainly wish you well with it. We We need a much greater creativity, I think, in ways to reach out to the sorts of people that we traditionally don't talk with. And so I'm spending most of my time now with the people who would cheerfully vote Mr. Obama out of office, the sorts of people who say we're going to vote for Sarah Palin if she runs. And having these conversations about what is it, what is it that you want? 
how is it that we together can organize to achieve what it is that we collectively want? And trying to better understand how they are seeing these issues, what they're thinking about, and how it is that the the ways of living, the the technologies that are available, the sorts of policies that can be implemented at a local level will help them achieve what it is they want. Because I'm quite clear, uh, what we've been doing isn't getting the job done. So in uh, conclusion, Hunter, by the way, uh, Hunter is uh, Time Magazine's Hero of the Planet, one of them a few years back, I believe. Uh, are you optimistic, pessimistic, um, not sure at this point because we are seemingly going in two different directions. On the one hand, there is more information uh, out there and yet um, than ever about these challenges, and yet so many people are somehow able to tune it out. Well, in the, in the depths of my despair a couple of weeks ago, I was writing to a friend, the brilliant systems ecologist, uh, Dr. Eric Berlow, who, by the way, just, his uh, TED Talk was just released on uh, on YouTube. Google Eric Berlow Ted and get a sense of, of what this guy does. Brilliant stuff. And was whining to him, and he said, uh, it's like skiing in the trees. Don't look at the trees. You'll hit one. And I thought, right, right. We've, we've got to look beyond what is depressing at the moment and look to where it is that we want to get to mm-hmm. and then get ever more nimble at what it will take, this, this dance with, uh, with gravity, with, uh, with all of the perils that are facing the planet. And just like skiing, if, if, you, if you lose this dance with gravity, you, you crash and burn and, and or hit a tree. Mm. Uh, we've, we've got to get very creative at, uh, at learning to, uh, to dance with all of these, these forces facing us and, and find more creative ways of, of making where it is we want to get to. Well, speaking of creativity and fun, that's a perfect segue to our next guest. He is uh, Dave Grulick. He has invented a game, a board game called Leaves, Green the Board, Green Our World. We're going to find out what that's all about and the story behind its inception. Hunter Lovins, I want to thank you for being with us. Always insightful, always honest, and um, keep on keeping on. I hope to see you soon at yet another conference. And, of course, the key is to get these conversations, this urgency, you know, beyond the green silos uh, out there to the general public, those between the Tea Partiers and the passionate greens. Thank you again for making time on short notice. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to the creator of a game that uh, I think looks pretty fun. It's certainly colorful. Leaves, it's called. We're going to leave you for just a couple minutes. We'll be right back on the green front. You are listening to PRN, Progressive Radio Network.